0: Love, talk, radio. Hey everybody, welcome to the Independent Corner. Tonight I have a very this is uh, your host Jonathan Moody, and I have a very special guest. It is Adam Rifkin. Uh, he has done such great hits as The Chase, The Dark Backward, um, you know Detroit Rock City, and his new movie Homo Erectus, as well as many others that we'll go into. But right now, let me say hello. Hello, Adam. How are you doing? I'm
1: good how you doing
0: uh, pretty good um so i'm I'm very happy that you came on my show dude like thanks so much.
1: no problem. thanks for having me on. I appreciate it
0: all right, so everybody knows we're gonna um i'm gonna interview uh Adam for thirty minutes if you guys have a question or wanna call in uh thirty thirty min into thirty minutes um we'll take callers so uh feel free to call in. It, the number is one six four six nine one All right, so anyway, um, Adam, I, I really want to know, uh, first of all, how did you get started uh, making movies? Uh, well,
1: it's all I ever wanted to do, make movies. I've loved movies for as long as I can remember. And um, I figured out pretty early on when I was a real little kid that somebody – had to be responsible for making them, and whoever that was, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really understand the concept of a producer or a director or a writer of movies at that age. I just knew that I wanted to, I just wanted to be responsible somehow for creating these magical things that were really exciting for me when I was a kid watching them. So uh, at about seven or eight years old, I convinced my father to let me have the home movie camera And I just started making movies with all of my time. I just made movie after movie after movie. And I starred my sister and all the kids in the neighborhood. And I didn't realize it then, but I was kind of teaching myself the principles of how to make a film. I figured, you know, because I knew when when I grew up I wanted to do it for real. But throughout my whole childhood, I just sort of did it on my own, making it up as I went along. And I figured, yeah when I got someday when I got to hollywood i I'd, I'd I'd get taught the the proper way, but I didn't realize that I was sort of teaching myself all the basics um like uh like editing, for example, when I first made the movies, I didn't understand about editing, so my buddy Greg would play two or you know several roles, so i'd I'd shoot him sitting at the kitchen table eating cereal, and then I'd cut the camera. And he'd hurry up and change his costume. And then I'd get a shot of the door and he'd walk in the door and say, oh, hey, what's up? And then I'd turn off the camera and he'd change clothes and get back in front of the cereal. And I'd get a shot of him looking up and going, oh, hey, man. I mean, I would just, I'd do all in-camera editing. And then I kind of figured out that I could shoot all of eating the cereal at once and then all of walking in the door at once and edit them together. And it kind of made it a lot easier, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, When I was 17, I uh, hightailed it out to Los Angeles and just started knocking on doors and writing scripts and just trying to find money to get movies made because the only difference between making a movie and not making a movie is having the money to to get it made. So um, I just started looking for money, and I got really lucky. The first script I wrote was read by this young producer named Brad Wyman, who I still work with today, all these years later, and he wanted to help try and get it made, and that's kind of what got the ball rolling, and we started looking for money together. And, was that Never uh,
0: on Tuesday? Was your first? That was
1: first? Yeah, that was the first film we got made. That wasn't the first script I wrote. The first script I wrote was The Dark Backward, and that's the script he read. But we couldn't get money for that at first. Because
0: so that was the too pre- big of a project, or...?
1: It was just too weird and too dark of a project, and at that time I was insistent on it being in black and white. And so um, we got the producer that Brad was working for to agree to finance a low-budget movie for him to produce and me to direct as long as it met some criteria. It had to appeal to teenagers. It had to have some nudity. It had to have three characters in one location. And so that's how Never on Tuesday came about. So what
0: what is Never on Tuesday about for people who haven't, had
1: a chance to see it yet well I, I uh, very few people have seen it it's not even available on DVD um, it's uh, about two young guys who are moving from Ohio to LA because they want to meet LA women and it was the 80s right so I was trying to sort of tap into that sort of 80s teen sex comedy thing like
0: and meatballs
1: um or... yeah meatballs and uh and you know private school girls and my tutor and last american virgin and movies like that right
0: right
1: so um so they get they're driving out west and they get into a car accident in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the desert with the only other car on the road and uh out steps a really hot girl and they're really excited because they're trapped out in the middle of nowhere with a really beautiful girl and this is where i thought i was being really progressive she's a lesbian and uh while they're waiting for help, they at first tried to sleep with her, but when they realized they didn't have a shot, they all sort of learned to become friends and and find mutual respect for one another. So that was my that was my idea of how to be you know, I was trying to be really bold <laughs> with with the whole lesbian uh storyline.
0: Now, it says yeah, it says that Nicolas Cage and Carrie Elvez and Emilio Estevez and you know, all these uh stars are in it. Um they're like uncredited, though. But are they really in it? Oh yeah, they're all in it. Charlie
1: Sheen is in it, and Judd Nelson is in it, and uh, a whole bunch of stars are in it. We um, we we convinced them all to all come down for a day into the desert and do cameos. <laughs> each of them. There's a different. They're, piece they're, they're,
0: they're, well, I guess uh, uh, was it? Carrie Elwes, his brother, uh, produced it, so might have helped you.
1: Cassie and Elwes is uh, Cassie and Elwes was. Uh, um, also, one of the producers. Yeah, that helped.
0: Uh, yeah. Also, the
1: the star of the movie, one of the stars of the movie, was a guy, a young actor named Pete Berg, who you might know as uh, as a very successful director today. He's gone on to direct among other movies, Hancock, which is out this summer.
0: Wow. Yeah. And he also did um, what Friday Night Lights and yeah very and things and
1: you know down a bunch of movies.
0: Yeah. So it was really cool that. Well he started out as an actor, right? Pretty much. So Pete Berg? Yeah, Pete Berg.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. He started out as an actor, yeah. Yeah,
0: so uh that's really cool though. Like you got to yeah. got to work with all these big uh sorry, my, my dog's barking a little bit. So um no, he uh yeah, no, that's great that you got to um you know, work with all these fantastic actors, you know.
2: Oh it's awesome, yeah, no, it was really fun.
0: Um, and um so after uh, Never on Tuesday got completed, um, what happened with distribution on
1: that? Uh, well, that was kind of a uh, that was kind of my first life lesson in Hollywood, because um, we made the movie solely independently with uh, um, you know independent funds, and we screened it for all the studios for distribution. And we had a lot of interest from a lot of studios. A bunch of the studios really wanted to take it on. But the producer who financed it, his partner on the project, who kind of took point on um, trying to sell the movie, he would only make a deal with Paramount because Paramount was the only studio that would take the movie for video rights only and then give him $2 million extra Additionally on top of the cost of the movie, so that he could release it theatrically through his new theatrical arm himself and what paramount didn't know is, is that there was there was no theatrical arm there was only uh, there was only him lying and stealing the money so all these other studios would have uh, released the movie but but he fooled them into thinking that he was going to release it and just pocketed the money. And when I called Paramount and I said, how could you let him get away with this? They said that, oh, he's one of the pioneers of home video and we've made so much money on his material in the past, we're just going to we're just going let it go. And it was really a bummer because it was a movie that could have really made a little splash with all those stars and everything in it. And as a result, it just never got seen, you know?
0: Is it, is it never going to get seen, pretty much? Well, hopefully
1: someday it'll make its way to DVD, but I don't know when, you know. I mean, it's been... It's been twenty years, twenty one or twenty two years now, so Dang,
0: that it, sucks.
1: It, it's the lost it's the lost movie. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean that that sucks but that happens a lot, right? You know, people say one thing and then all of a sudden they just they're just there to try to um uh just try to steal your money, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of duplicity in Los Angeles and Hollywood and uh that was my first example yeah. of it, you know. It was a real drag.
0: Well, it's also probably a, a lesson, you know, like now now you knew what to avoid, you know. Well, it, it, you know, little things like that
1: along the way, every time one of those it happens, it just makes you uh, a little bit uh, more well-equipped to navigate through Hollywood, you know. I mean, I'm not bitter about it, you know. It's, it's just the way Hollywood works sometimes. You just have to keep a sense of humor about it, otherwise it'll make you crazy, you know.
0: Exactly. All right, so um, after you had done... Um, uh, well, since you now, I, I have a I have a question that doesn't have to do necessarily with the movies itself, but you write you you write and direct as well as you write you know a, a certain movie that you don't direct, and you have uh, directed movies that you haven't written, right? So correct. What uh, you know, uh, what, what what's your favorite to do of all of those?
1: I prefer to write and direct. A movie. Okay. I feel I feel like it's the most mine. I feel like you know if I have an idea and I see that idea through into a script and then I can see that script through production to actually you know you know actually creating a finished film a finished product. It's a really satisfying feeling creatively. Um, it's don't get me wrong, it's also very satisfying to direct a movie that I didn't write for other reasons. It's fun to interpret words that I didn't write, but but for me, I just, feel, I just feel really fulfilled when I get a chance to take something from an initial idea to a finished product. When I write a movie that I don't direct, I feel very disconnected from it once I turn in the script. I know a lot of writers who get really upset when the director changes things. I don't. Um, I know that Film is a director's medium, and whoever's going to direct something that I write is going to do to it what they want. Whether I think it's a good idea or not is irrelevant. They're the directors, So I don't get emotionally involved once I've turned it in. I let it go. I have too many other scripts of my own that I want to make and too many other ideas I want to write. And uh, I know a lot of writers who, who've gotten themselves barred from sets because they get so upset when a director changes things I don't. I'm just happy to see somebody making something that I wrote, you know.
0: Exactly. That's really cool, though. Um, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, definitely. And and to actually... And, and I mean, isn't it kind of fun to see also, like, yeah, I mean, with with writing, you know, like, if you... Like, you know, with especially with something like as big as you had uh, written Underdog, you know, uh-huh. so would you have rather have directed that movie or do you think that it just was a movie that you... We're
1: glad you just wrote, but then, you know. I'm glad I wrote it. I took the job job knowing going in that I was just going to be writing it. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was a fun experience writing it, and I think the movie turned out fun, and kids really like it, and it made a lot of money, and I'm really happy to have been a part of it. But I knew going in I was just going to be the writer of it, and that was totally cool with me. I had no problem with that.
0: Yeah, kind of like how, I guess how James Gunn probably felt when he did Scooby-Doo, you know, you felt just, you just wanted to, you know, you're happy just writing it, you know? Right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, did they ask you, have they would they ask you, have they asked you to do Underdog 2, or can you not say?
1: Uh, they have not talked about a sequel to Underdog yet, so we'll see what happens.
0: Well, maybe you'll be the first to be contacted about that.
1: Mm, I hope so.
0: <laughs> all right so uh to get back to your um uh your past you know and everything um uh, tell me tell me a little bit about uh Tale of two sisters is that a um is that also not available or
1: that's on dvd somewhere but that really that that movie is uh is probably uh one of my least favorite movies that i've made literal it was it was completely an experiment we shot it in one weekend we made it up as we went along and it was if If it were to be cut down into a music video length, it would probably be kind of cool. but as a feature film it does that definitely does not work but it was just kind of a it was just kind of a fun little thing to do over the course of the weekend but of course because <laughs> because DVD, on d v d things last forever, it creeps up you know uh, as something uh from my past. I just don't think it's a very good movie, but I will tell you um something that that came about around the same time as this, which is really exciting. When I was sc- screening Never on Tuesday for people to buy, we screened for all the studios. And one of the studios we screened for was 20th Century Fox. And when the producer wouldn't sell it to Fox, I got to meet with the president of the studio. And he said, you know, I liked your movie. I'd like to work with you. What would you, what would you like to do next? And so I had always been a big Planet of the Apes fan, so I said, I really want to do the next Planet of the Apes. Um, and, and I gave him my take on it, which was that basically it would be a sequel to the first film, and it would open with the ending scene from the first film of Charlton Heston screaming up at the Statue of Liberty, realizing he was on Earth the whole time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then it would cut to black, and then a card would read 300 years later. And it would, it would come up on the apes having reached their Roman era, and I was basically going to do Spartacus with apes, that the, the apes were the Romans, and the, the humans were the slaves, and that one slave who was a descendant of Charlton Heston leads a slave revolt against the uh, tyrannical apes, right? So right. he said, "He said, I love it, you're hired, you're going to write it, you're going to direct it, and I thought to myself, oh my God, I'm going to be rich and famous at twenty one years old, you know
0: right so
1: I, I wrote the script and he loved the script, and we were courting uh, Rick Baker to do the Apes of course, and Danny Elfman to do the score of course and and at that time it was either going to be Tom Cruise or Charlie Sheen to play the guy right right and um, and so we were about to go into pre-production, and the head of the studio got fired and oh, all the time, I, I know yeah, that
0: kind of thing. Yeah,
1: and all his his projects got shelved, and mine was one of them. And that was my second (laughs) life lesson in Hollywood, which was, you know, you just can't, you know, you just just can't count your chickens before they hatch. You know, I was so convinced that I was going to be, you know, in Tunisia, you know, with a bullhorn, you know, directing 500 guys in gorilla suits to be charging over a, a hilltop, you know, on horseback. And then in one second, it was pulled out from under me. It was a bummer, but I I thought to myself I could be really bummed about this for the next six months, or I could just kick into gear and just start writing more scripts and just you know and just be a machine. And that's basically those two that one two punch that never on Tuesday didn't get at the actual release and Planet of the Apes getting pulled at the last second. That kind of set me on a path of just just um, ceaseless. Uh, uh, work, you know, I just knew that I couldn't trust that anything was real until it was real and I couldn't count any chickens before they hatched and I was just going to keep writing script after script after script and I was going to just keep trying to make movie after movie after movie until uh, you know, until I felt like I had a firm footing uh, with my career and I didn't have to re- rely on anybody else and um, and that that was, you know, a drag but it was a good life lesson. Definitely, definitely
0: that's really cool though like that would have been a great uh Planet of the Apes sequel. That that's way better than uh Tim Burton's. You know. <laughs> well, I uh, I would have
1: loved to have done it, you know. It would have been really fun.
0: Yeah, definitely Spartacus with apes. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, so okay, so I guess uh after after all that happened, um was that be- all that uh, all that stuff happening was that before um the dark backward actually got made or
1: all the, Yeah, all this time, since the first script I wrote was The Dark Backward, all this time, through Never on Tuesday, through Writing Planet of the Apes, through writing other scripts and you know trying to get other movies made, we were always, Brad and I, the producer, we were always trying to get The Dark Backward made all the time. Because that was definitely the one that we wanted to make the most. And you so, what's so
0: that? you said pretty much it was because it was too dark, it was too weird and... It's weird, it's dark,
1: it's kind of oddball, you know, not so much now, you know, but at the time it was, it was seen as being pretty offbeat, you know, so, which was, you know, I mean, I was trying to make it offbeat. I mean, I knew that I couldn't afford big stars or big special effects, but I figured if I could make the ideas really unusual, at least maybe that can help the movie stand out from other movies, even though it's a small movie, you know, so, um so we finally got that one made i guess that was about 23 when we got that one made so 19, 20, 22, 23 so it took about 5 years to get that movie made
0: wow so uh, then that gives uh independent filmmakers you know uh a uh, you know silver lining right there to know that you know sometimes it takes 5 years just to get a project off the ground well, I thought
1: that was a long time at that time. There are movies that I've been trying to get made since then, and uh, <laughs> it's been fifteen years. So hopefully, I'll get some of those made someday too. Uh, it it takes a really long time. You just can't quit. You can't give up. You just got to keep moving forward. You know.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, I guess right before uh, the Dark Backward, you had done um, the Invisible Maniac. Um, yeah, I, uh, when I when
1: the Dark Backward got green lit. I really wanted to make sure that I was as prepared for it as possible, and so, kind of as a practice movie, I made a little horror movie real quick just to sort of just to sort of get in practice again because it had been a couple years since uh, never on Tuesday right right so so uh we made this little low budget horror movie, and the the pseudonym I use for for low budget uh, horror movies sometimes is Riff Coogan. And so, uh, I, uh, I made, that was my first Riff Coogan project, The Invisible Maniac, and that was a lot of fun. And then I used the, you know, just the practice of having done that to take me into The Dark Backward, which went immediately right after. And then I could apply just, you know, just, just getting more nimble, apply that to, uh, making The Dark Backward, which was a movie that was really important to me that I make really good. You know, not, The Invisible Maniac was just, Fun schlock. I, the stakes were low. I didn't really care if it turned out and good, you know. I just kind of wanted to shoot some film real quick. We shot it really fast, and and then going right into the, the dark record, it I felt like I was a little bit more in practice.
0: Right. So, uh, so you just use that just to make sure that you can you could know, get something you know done quickly, and make sure that yeah. you don't get kind of screwed in the process too, right? Well, no,
1: I as m- more just sort of I wanted to be I just wanted to be nimble. I just wanted to have I just wanted to feel loose and practiced. You know, you you get such a so few opportunities to direct when you're a director, you know, it's it's like starting from scratch in a way almost every time. So, I wanted to I just wanted to direct something else before I directed The Dark backward just so I had all that much more experience going into it. Huh.
0: That's really cool though. Um
1: Yes, yeah, smart.
0: Yeah, so uh so how was it? How was it shooting the Invisible Maniac?
1: It was fun, man. It was uh it was really fun. We uh it was just a, you know, it was just a fun, low budget schlock horror movie. And uh, you know, it there was pretty girls and shower scenes and blood and guts and
0: everything one of the girls
1: played, Yeah, everything you expect from exploitation, you know. Uh one of the girls in it went on to become a huge porn star uh named Savannah. She, it's a real Hollywood tragedy, actually. Her first movie was never on... Excuse me. Her first movie was The Invisible Maniac. She then went on to become a porn star. She then went on to become the biggest porn star in the 90s, and then she killed herself, uh, which is really kind of unfortunate, but um, Hollywood is a top town sometimes.
0: Was that because of all the, you know, because of the porn star, uh, porn star life that she had?
1: Well... From what I understand, she and they, they did an e-Hollywood true Hollywood story about her, but she she had the drug problem and and uh, there was a whole slew of reasons why she felt that that's that was her uh, only option. But it was really a drag, really sad.
0: That that does stink. Um, but um, you know, uh, I guess her her legacy will always live on. So yeah. <laughs> um. I guess let's see. Um, so, so then we got that,
1: a to make The Dark Backward, which was really a, a a highlight of my of my career. It was a real dream come true to make that movie, you know.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I know. Hold on, can you hear me? Yeah,
1: I can hear you.
0: Okay. For some reason, it sounds bad on my end. So. Oh. <laughs> Alright. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk about uh, you. You've read the book uh, Spike, Mike, Flackers, and Dikes, right?
2: Yes, I have.
0: And I believe uh, Kevin Smith and John Pearson both talk about uh, The Dark Backward a little bit. Yes, yes they do. And um, I guess they they uh, I guess they analyze it a little bit, too, if I'm correct. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: What was it like to read that?
1: Well, it was great until he said that the movie was shit. I mean, he talked about it for, like, a, a good period of time in the book and, uh, you know, and talked all about how it was the movie that got him from New Jersey over to New York to first, Introduce him into independent film, and and I was reading it, and I was like, oh, this is awesome, man! And then finally, he says, yeah, that movie was shit. But then we saw Slackers next door, and we thought that was awesome. So uh, that was a bummer. I know Kevin Smith, and I've given him shit about that, and uh, we laugh about it today.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I guess you know the the you know the the film world's so kind of small too. Like you think it's bigger than it is, but you know people are going to no, meet people no. all the time that you know.
1: It's true.
0: So, and it's you know so you got to watch what you say i guess too cuz you never know who you're
1: you're going to end he, up meeting he doesn't really watch what he says which is uh, his part of his thing i know but uh, um <laughs> <laughs> i know it's gotten him in trouble in the past um but um you know i don't take anything personally i mean people can like a movie i make people can not like a movie i make you know i i uh, it's water off a duck's back to me you know I mean, there's lots of movies that I love and there's lots of movies I don't love, you know, by filmmakers I I worship, so.
0: What was it like to work with uh, Jed Nelson and uh, Bill Paxton?
1: Well, the whole experience making The Dark Backward was great. I mean, I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was young, but we had total 100% creative control making that movie, and it was a very weird movie. And to have creative control on that kind of project is really rare, the company that financed it, um, they were uh, they were successful off of sexualizing videotape. They had just made that movie, and it made a lot of money for them. So they immediately greenlit a ton of other small independent movies. And they finally, we finally got The Dark Backward made because we had Judd Nelson and Bill Paxton and Wayne Newton and James Caan all attached to being in it. And uh, we took the package to. This company, which was at the time called RCA Columbia, uh, which was a division of Columbia Pictures, and um, but it was like their their total B-rate division, you know. And uh, we said we got this script, we got this, you know, filmmaker and producer, and we've got this cast, and we only need this much money, which was under a million dollars. And uh, and they said yes to the movie without even reading the script. They didn't even care what we were making, so we were left completely alone. Of course, uh, when the movie was done and we finally had our big screening of it, and they they, they came to see it, they hated it, you know. But um, we all all were real excited about it and are really proud of it. And actually, it's a movie that has continued to live on all these years later. It continues to find an audience and it has a big cult following. And it recently just came out on DVD, and I keep I get tons of uh, emails and and cards and stuff about people around the world discovering it still and digging it. It's really, really exciting.
0: That is awesome though. Um, I'm gonna ask uh well I guess it's almost uh been a uh almost a half hour. If anybody does wanna come on and talk, uh we'll be talking about uh <clears throat> Adam Rifkin here, so uh call in at one six four six nine one five eight six nine three or we have a few people in the chat room so they want to uh, ask a question. Feel free to ask something, and we'll uh, answer it. You know, or we'll—I guess you'll happy. answer it.
1: Yeah, happy to. So,
0: definitely. Um, but I guess um, you know, a- as far as the dark backward goes, I mean, uh, if you could—I mean, I guess everybody always gets this question. no everybody always says there is, but if there uh, would there be anything that you would change about it, if you could, you know, about the it's movie. Possible.
1: But, I mean, I probably, yeah, I would say when I look at any film I've made, I want to change the whole thing. you know what I mean every every time you know when you're in the when you're making a movie, you're in this mindset, this obsessive mindset that you're that, that you're just focused on every detail. you want every cut to be right, you want every sound effect to be right, you want every you know you want the color timing on every shot to be right. And you end up watching the movie over and over and over and over and over again, trying to get it right and hone it down. And and it's sometimes tough to see the forest for the trees because you're so focused on the minutiae that sometimes you don't see the big picture. And then once the movie is done and there is no more changes that can be made, once it is completely finished and you can't go back and change anything, only then do I watch the movie and really see what I've made, you know what I mean? And only then do I realize, "Oh my god, what have I done?" You know, I want to change everything. Uh because at that point I can't change anything. But um yeah, I would want to change everything uh, uh about it at this point. But, you know, that said, I can't and I it's a real it's a real sentimental favorite of mine that movie and I'm really proud of it and so I really want everybody to see it, but personally, me myself, you know I can't look at anything I do without being hypercritical of it
0: definitely and um so I mean, I guess thats a lot of people say that like that that you know uh if they could go back and change whatever they would, you know if they could change it all that's why i I don't
1: really like to watch my movies after i um Uh, That's why I don't really like to watch my movies after they're done, you know. Like, I I recently saw for the first time in years uh, the movie The Chase. It was on television, and I was with somebody, and and so we just ended up watching it. And uh, I guess I was able to see it for the first time sort of a little bit objectively, you know what I mean? But it took a long time for me to get to that point, you know, and still not entirely objectively. Because you remember every shot, you remember where you were standing and what you had for lunch that day, and what was going wrong and why it wasn't the way you wanted it to be it's a weird experience to see a movie i mean it would be it would be great i'd love to be able to watch movies that i've made with amnesia you know i'd love to be able to take a pill and forget everything for a few hours and then watch a movie i made and see how i would react not having remembered making them because that totally colors how i watch anything i've ever made before you know
0: yeah definitely and um i mean that's kind of a that's kind of a weird thing to say that uh like you know, that you're at home with somebody and then all of a sudden your movie comes on, you know? Yeah. yeah it's probably right. like a surreal experience, too. Like, oh, my God, I made that.
1: Yeah, it is weird. It's it's a very weird thing when that happens.
0: Yeah, so, um, but, you know, so you looked back at, well, we'll we'll get to the chase in a little bit because we're not, I guess we're not even really there yet. Uh, yeah, no, for But we'll definitely talk about that in a little bit. But um, going from the dark backward to going into anything else, um, you know, is, isn't it kind of weird to go through a surreal movie that you've been waiting to do, and then you finally have it done? Now, now, where do you go from there after that, you know? The dark
1: backward after the dark backward?
0: Yeah, after the dark backward. Like, where were you thinking that you wanted to go from there? Well,
1: I mean, I just wanted to keep making movies, you know? I just love movies, and- and so you know when, when I would do things, like when I would make a movie like The Dark Backward, you know I, I knew that it was you know it was a small movie, it was an odd movie. and I always at the same time I was always trying to write scripts to sell to big studios. I, I always wrote small movies for myself to direct, and I always wrote big movies that I would try to sell. And so while I was making all these movies, never on Tuesday, The Dark Backward, all sorts of other independent movies I've made, I'm always writing. Movies that I think would be big hits, big studio movies, and you know you write them and you try and sell them and they don't sell, and you write another one and you try and sell them and it doesn't sell, but you just got to keep bullying forward. You know, I mean if there's if there's any filmmaker wannabes out there listening, you know I would I would say the advice that I could give based on my experiences is you can't write two scripts and then when they don't sell say well I gave it my best shot I guess I'm just not ever going to succeed as a screenwriter. You know. Uh, you have to write 10 scripts, 20 scripts. I wrote, not including the independent movies that I made, I wrote 29 studio-style scripts that didn't sell before I wrote a script that did sell to a studio, which was a movie called Mouse Hunt. So it would be really easy for anybody to say, after 29 scripts didn't sell... God, this is never going to work. I guess I'll just quit now. I mean, you have to just keep writing that, you know, maybe it'll be the next one that everything pays off, or maybe it'll be the next one. You, you just cannot quit. And by the way, if you choose to quit, you must not have wanted it badly enough. And I can't stress that strongly enough. If anybody who quits, you just must not want it badly enough. There's no failure in Hollywood. You cannot fail. This is a very important point, too and a lot of things, people don't realize this, you, can, you cannot fail in Hollywood, but you can quit. You know? But you can't fail because there's always another opportunity that you can create for yourself out of thin air. There's no rules in Hollywood. It's, it's literally the Old West. You can make up your own path. It's not like medical school where you have to go down a set path, and when you come out the other end, you will guaranteed be a doctor. You know? Hollywood is the opposite. There's no set path. So what you have to do is you have to be extraordinarily motivated, extraordinarily disciplined, and you have to um, do whatever you can to succeed um, no matter what kind of rejection comes your way. Think of yourself as a GPS device in a car. Like, have you ever been in a car with a GPS device? Uh, Yeah. Okay, so so if you're driving in a car, it says, you know, turn left here, turn right here, right? But if you suddenly come upon road construction, and you take and it it you have to take a different route, the GPS device will recalibrate a different an alternate route for you, right? Right. So you have you your brain has to be a GPS device. And it's, ready for roadblocks. Yeah, whatever roadblock comes your way, your GPS chip in your brain has to say, recalibrating now. And it has to figure out another route around that roadblock to get down the you know, to get onto that path again. Huh.
0: That's I've never heard it. I've never heard it. Um, i never heard it said like that. You know, like the GPS thing. That's awesome. <laughs> that's a great metaphor, right there. Thanks. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, definitely. And I mean, I guess that, that's right. Um, but as as far as scripts went, um, before you said uh, Dark Backward was like your first big script, but that wasn't the first script you ever wrote, right?
1: No, Dark Backward was the very first script I ever wrote.
0: For real? Wow. Yeah.
1: And and then I even though I made Never on Tuesday. A year, a year later, um, Dark Bag was the first script that I wrote, and, the fir- and that was the way that I met Brad Wyman. And then after I met Brad Wyman, and we couldn't get it financed, that's when I wrote Never on Tuesday, and we got Never on Tuesday made. But we were always still trying to get the Dark Bradford made.
0: Okay, I, I didn't know if like, because some people go through like many, many scripts before they get to the one that's probably the best idea to to go with, you know?
1: Right, right, sure.
0: I mean, I'm sure, did you start, did you actually write scripts when you were, like, a kid or anything, or, like...
1: Just little ones for the little movies that I made growing up, you know.
0: Did you but didn't Dark... try to write any big ones?
1: Uh, Well, Dark Backwood was the first feature I wrote, first feature I wrote. Okay.
0: That's really cool, though. So, the first uh, feature you wrote was uh, the movie that uh, ended up becoming, you know, your first big hit,
1: you know. Yeah, it was it was awesome. That's
0: awesome. Um... But, okay, so after after The Dark Backward, you know, got uh, it got a really good distribution deal, too, right?
1: Yeah, you know, in the art house world, you know, it got a really good art house release. The same company that released Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and a, and a bunch of other really cool arty movies that I loved at the time, they took it on and uh, they gave it a really good um, release and it got great reviews. I mean, the New York Post named it one of the top ten films of the year. And, that, and it was on the same list in the same top ten as Silence of the Lambs. I mean, it was crazy, you know. But at the same time, there are other reviewers that hated it, which still to this day is kind of the reaction to the dark Fagger. people either seem to love it or hate it. And, and in a way, I actually take that as a great compliment, because I'd rather make a movie that leaves an impression than make a movie that people are just like, eh, you know.
0: That, that's really cool so um yeah definitely uh the thing with your um with the dark backward being you know such a cool release uh, i mean did did you get to do a special edition d v d release for it
1: yeah, and it just came out it just recently came out um you can get it on amazon um the uh, r c a Columbia, which is now um sony um home entertainment. So Sony Home Entertainment owns the, the library from RCA Columbia. And so Sony put it out on the DVD, and we did a big special edition, and we've got uh, a documentary uh, of the making of, and we've got behind-the-scenes stuff and deleted scenes and all kinds of cool stuff. We've got the, we shot some promos at the time that we used to try and get the movie financed in can. We got those on the DVD. We got all kinds of cool stuff
0: definitely. And did you do like a commentary track or...
1: Yeah, there was a commentary track with me and Judd Nelson and Bill Paxton and Brad Wyman, the producer. And we also did an anniversary screening in L.A. and did a Q&A and that was all filmed and that's on the DVD also.
0: That is really cool. So Yeah, yeah definitely fun. people should check that out, you know. Totally. Um, and so after, I guess, after it's done, you know, and after it was released, uh, the next uh the next movie that is listed as uh your uh, directing uh now I-, I don't know if this is exactly true but a lot of people say that you directed the Nut House. Is that true? Well
1: I did not and I did it well here's what happened. The the original director um uh was fired and because Brad, the producer, um was producing it he asked me to come in at the end and just finish filming it a little bit and I was very torn because I was friends with the director and uh, but I was also very close with Brad the producer and so as a favorite to Brad I came in and filmed it and the company the finance that financed it used my name um, which which they did not have uh, had I been in the DJ at that time I could have kept that from happening but I wasn't in the DJ yet so no I did not direct that movie I do not consider myself I do not consider myself a director of that movie at all. I just came in and shot what on any other movie would have been considered some second-unit shooting. But um, my name is on the DVD, and unfortunately that's out there. But
0: uh, I, I definitely do not consider that my film at all. Okay. Uh, I tried watching it, and, you know, it was... No, I, I, You know, I was a big fan of, You know, I wanted to see it because I was a big fan of Sam Raimi, and I'd heard that they were, like, you know... That they were writing it, you know, that they wrote it. And everybody,
1: everybody, yeah, no, everybody involved with that movie is 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 really unhappy to have that as part of their past. I mean, it just was an ugly experience for everybody involved.
0: Yeah, I asked. I even asked. Uh, I don't know if uh, I used to have uh, Josh Becker on the show back in the day, and I talked to Josh online about. Um, you know, who Josh Becker is right. Uh, he's friends with Scott Spiegel and uh, Sam yeah. Raimi. All of them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. he was talking about how, like, Sam, you know, that he didn't even know about that movie until I mentioned it to him, until he saw it, like, on IMDb. So, yeah, no,
1: everybody who was ever involved in that movie would love to forget about it. So.
0: <laughs> All right, so let's forget about it. All right, move on. <laughs> so, uh, actually, I guess the next big thing that everybody uh, seems to want to talk about that uh, I guess as one of the Riff Coogan uh, projects you did was, um, uh, it's, uh, Psycho Cop Returns.
1: Yeah, um, that was another, that was another opportunity like Invisible Maniac where I was about to start making a movie called The Chase with uh, Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson. It was going to be the big, it was going to be the biggest budget movie I had ever had an opportunity to make at that time, which is still a low budget movie, but for me, it was a lot of money. Uh, It was a $6 million movie at the time, I think, and I think Charlie got three of it. So it was $3 million to actually make the movie with, which at that time was more than every movie I've ever made combined, right?
0: Right. And so
1: I really wanted to, you know, I really wanted to hone my chops a little bit before I jumped into it. So right before that one went, I made another little Riff Coogan horror movie called Psycho Cop Returns, which was a blast to make. We had a great time. And uh, it just kind of, again gave me more practice as a director before I went into um the chase.
0: Definitely. And that's really cool though because I guess this are you are you going to keep doing that though? Is that going to be one of the things um where you keep doing riff coogan uh projects? Whenever you I haven't do...
1: done a, I haven't done a riff coogan project in in a long time, but I'm open to doing more. I mean, it's always a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I guess now with, uh, uh, you know, digital, with, uh, like, HD and all that stuff, all the technology out there, you could probably make a Riff Kugan movie much, much easier, much, you know, more cheaper. than You you know, you could have back in the day when you actually had to spend, you know, $200,000 just to get a project off the ground, you know? It's
1: true. Well, that's actually something that I wanted to talk about, too, to, to, again, to the aspiring filmmakers listening. It's never been a, a better time for young filmmakers than right now. It's, it's easier now to get a movie made than ever before, and I'll tell you why. Because of uh, video. You know, a movie like, a movie like um, The Blair Witch Project, whether you liked it or whether you hated it, proved that you can make a movie, a feature-length film, on a consumer-bought camcorder and it can be released theatrically and make 200 million dollars at the domestic box office. You know what I mean? So what that basically means is is that the content is all that matters. The way that you make it and the medium you shoot it on is irrelevant. So you can literally buy a camera for 100 bucks at Circuit City. You can steal the editing software off the, you know, off LimeWire or wherever. You could, you know, you have friends who are actors who will, you know, work for free. You know, you can write a script for nothing. You know, talent is the most, you know, is is your best production value. So if you've got some talent, write a good script, direct a good movie, direct it for nothing, edit it for nothing, you know, score it on GarageBand or whatever. You can make a movie for zero money these days. And if it's good, just because it's cheap doesn't mean it's going to be good. But if you can make it good, who knows? It can get accepted into Sundance. It can get bought by Miramax. It it could change your life or it doesn't get sold and you can put it online and you can create a fan base online. I mean, YouTube is suddenly you're an international broadcaster by putting a film that you make on YouTube. You can make a short film. You can make a feature film and break it up into chunks, whatever. If you're a filmmaker, if you're a young filmmaker and you're not just going out there and making a movie, you're, 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 you're wasting your time. You know, if you're waiting for somebody to give you ten million dollars, you're wasting your time. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that too, but if I, if, if when I started out, there was, you know, people took uh, HD or or mini DV seriously as a medium, which they didn't then. You had to shoot it on film then. But if they were taking that seriously as a medium then, I'd have made so many movies so much sooner than I ended up making them. You know, and I would have had movies. I would have had movies on YouTube and the internet, and I would have made so many more movies. At such a younger age, I really, really think that it's important that uh, young filmmakers take advantage of all the technology and just go make a movie.
0: Definitely. Like Robert Rodriguez always, you know, points out to people as much as he can, it's, you know?
1: It's true. It's true.
0: Just go out there and just yeah, take your uh, take the editing software, which comes with most uh, computers these days, too. You know, editing exactly. software. You know, if you buy a new computer, you have probably editing software on there somewhere you know it's so. true it's
1: True. I mean there's a movie there's a movie uh that came out um around the time that I was making my first film called Stranger than Paradise directed by Jim Jarmusch right mm-hmm. it was made for nothing and the and and literally every scene was one master shot right mm-hmm. i mean and you could that movie today you could literally make that movie today for free I mean, it wouldn't cost you $10 to make that movie today. And that movie was a brilliant independent film. that still cost, like, I think, $100,000, I mean, because you had to process the film. You know what I mean? But, but it would these, cost, they,
0: like, $100 now because you don't have to process the film. Cause
1: exactly. That's exactly right. You know, if the French New Wave filmmakers were making movies today, if if Jean-Luc Godard and, and Francois Truffaut and those guys were, were getting started today, you know, they, they'd be shooting on mini-DV, you know?
0: Yeah, I mean that's, and I guess uh, was it the um, uh, there's the uh, the, what was that uh, thing that um, god, the dogma, dogma. Yeah, the dogma. Five. Five, yeah, Lars
1: von Trier and all that stuff. I mean, those guys prove it too. You can make brilliant, brilliant works of cinematic art with a store-bought camcorder. It's just all about the content.
0: Exactly. So yeah. to go to the content, uh, let's talk about The, the Chase with uh, okay. Charlie Sheen and uh, Christy
1: Swan. Speaking of brilliant cinematic art. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, um, actually, I think that was the first movie I'd ever uh, seen of yours and not known, you know, not known years later I'd be talking to you. But, you know, uh-huh. like I had uh, I'd caught uh, The Chase on, um, like, I guess it was like Cinemax or something back in the day. That's about right. Yeah, Showtime. One of the one of those uh, paid uh, channels at the at the time. I think now it comes on like what TBS all the time. It's on all. It's on all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's great to see though because I mean it is a fun movie. That's what it is. Thank you. It, that's what it seems like you guys set out to do is just make a fun chase movie. Well, after the dark
1: backward, the dark backward was an interesting experience in that after I made it, like I said, people either loved it or hated it, so, hated it. So. A lot of the people that loved it were other filmmakers and other artists and other, you know, musicians that I knew and like. Like artistic people, dug it. They saw what I was trying to do and they really, really got into it. Right. right. But Hollywood, all the guys that wear suits, they hated it cause they said, "Holy crap, this guy makes movies about circus freaks and there's fat ladies in his movies and midgets and weirdos and it's dark and it's it's grimy and it's filthy and it's weird and." We can't hire this guy. So it literally rendered me unhirable, that movie. So I said to Brad, we've got to make a movie that's, that shows that I can make an accessible movie. Otherwise, I'm just going to be unhirable forever. So I decided I made the deliberate choice to make a very fluffy, very brightly lit car crash movie. And uh, so, you know, I just watched all the movies that I grew up loving, all the car crash movies I grew up loving, like, um, you know, Vanishing Point and Gone in 60 Seconds and Eat My Dust and all those great AIP movies from the 60s and 70s. And I just said, I want to make a movie like this. I just want it to be fun and, and, uh, and light and just crash some cars and, and it'd be uh, a good time. And so that's why we made The Chase.
0: Wow, I keep forgetting that uh, Ron Jeremy was in that movie. Looking at yeah. the IMDb, but yeah, definitely. I mean, like it's it's got you know huge stars, uh, you know, especially at that time. Charlie Sheen and Christy Swanson were like the hit stars to get, you
1: know. Oh, they were big. Yeah, I mean, she was hot off of Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie, right? And he was, and he was a big movie star off of a ton of movies, you know. And it was it was a, it was a real coup to get them for such a low budget. You know, I mean, it was a really small movie, and it was a, really, it was a coup to get them, but it was, um, and it was, a, it, the movie was really successful. You know, it, it made a lot of money for a lot of people, and it plays all the time, and it, it's it's a fun one to have made because it's one that a lot of people have seen, you know.
0: Yeah, and, and is that the one that people remember you most from? Or? No, I
1: think it's one that, that I get the most, um attention for the one that the most people have seen is detroit rock city
0: okay okay but i guess before then that was the one that (laughs) before Before, detroit rock city became
1: you know before detroit rock city was definitely the one that had been seen the most uh as you know in terms of me as a director it was the one that everybody had seen on cable and everybody had seen on tv and um and then detroit rock city though became a really big big cult hit so
0: Definitely, and um, that's—I uh, guess—that's yeah, definitely. That's definitely something we'll talk about in a second. You know, a little bit. Um, but um, uh, I, you know, so the chase, I guess, was uh, your first big—you know—hit. Uh, did it, did it do really well, like you know, financially? It,
1: it here's what's interesting. You know, in Hollywood, perception is everything, right? So right, so the movie was made. All in, like I said, for about six million bucks. Three million to Charlie and then three million to make the movie, right? Right. And uh, and it was made independently it was an independent film. But we sold it to Fox, 20th Century Fox, and they released it theatrically. And they gave it a real nice release. And theatrically it did decent. It was not a hit theatrically at all. But it was a huge hit on DVD and on uh video and on television and on cable it was huge right but the perception in hollywood was oh it was a it was a it was a it it underperformed because theatrically it did not break any records right although i will tell you this the year that it came out it was the third highest grossing it was it was the third highest grossing profited movie in 20th century fox's roster Uh, Because every one of their movies had been made for so much money that year that uh, in terms of actual cost-profit ratio, ours was number three that year. And I think the two above it literally were uh, True Lies and Mrs. Doubtfire, right? So that was pretty shocking. But still, the perception was, oh, it wasn't a big hit, right? But think about the fact that it was was made for six million bucks. So if it made... 20 million theatrically and or 25 million theatrically and then made another umpteen gajillion in all the other ancillary markets, it was a really big success. Right. But you know, it's not success in a sexy way. Like a sexy success is number one movie in America, you know?
0: Right. But it did make like about 20 million or. I don't know the
1: numbers, but I mean, it did, it did for what it cost. it did, great,
0: you know? Okay, definitely. And, um, so I guess yeah, that's that's incredible though. That I guess that put you on the map to uh, you know for uh, directors to look out for. It right? helped a lot, it helped a lot. Yeah,
1: it definitely helped a lot.
0: And um, so after the chase, though, um, you went on, and um, I see that you created, you helped co-create like a TV show. Uh, both yeah. Well, what
1: what happened before that? Um, I created this TV show for ABC called Bone Chillers, which was a, like a, kind of like a live action Scooby Doo. Um, it was a really fun live action horror show about a haunted high school, and it was a lot of fun. But around that same time I was doing that, I took a movie to direct. I took on a movie to direct that I didn't write. It was a project I shouldn't have taken on, and it turned out to be the worst experience of my life that became the best experience of my life. And what happened was I took I got hired to direct a movie called Barb Wire by Pamela <laughs> Anderson, right? right. <laughs> and
0: and no, I was probably I a wise decision. Yeah, well I
1: took the I took the job. I, I thought to myself, I don't really want to make this movie, but I felt like I should take the movie. It was a big budget. She was riding a real big wave of success at that time. She was like being you know, she was like in Can and being touted as the new Bridget Bardot and like she was, She's like the first sort of bombshell, bombshell icon in a really long time. And so I took the job, and um, I got caught in a political battle between the comic book company that owned the property and the film company that was financing it. And consequently, right after I got hired, I got fired. Right. Right. So it it was a real bummer, and it was in all the trades that I got fired, and it was it was it was the kind of thing that could easily make you you know go into a, a depression, you know. But I said to myself, I'm just not going to let that happen. I mean, I just remembered back to, you know, when Planet of the Apes was yanked out from under me right before we were about to make it. You know, there's so many disappointments in Hollywood. You can't let them slow you down. You just have to keep moving forward. So I used it as a motivator to work triply hard. So while they were shooting that movie, And all the people in town that had called me to congratulate me for getting the job now weren't returning my calls when I was calling them after I had been fired, right? Right. Uh, I said, the only power I have in this town is the ability to generate material from scratch. Everybody around me in Hollywood, I look around, I see producers, agents, executives, production companies, they're all looking for material. They'll pay for it, they'll steal it, they'll borrow it, whatever it takes. I can create it from nothing, just like you know any writer can. So I'm going to just start writing material that I think is valuable. And so I wrote probably three or four scripts during the time they were still shooting and three of them didn't sell. But the one that did sell was Mouse Hunt and it sold to Steven Spielberg and DreamWorks and it it got greenlit right away and it got made right away and it became DreamWorks' first big $100 million hit. And it just was a, a good example of how you have to take a bad situation and just Turn it into your advantage, and that's what I did you know
0: definitely and I mean, I guess that that would probably make you sad though to kind of you know to go through something like that, and then all of a sudden you know have it yanked out in front of you but um you know I guess uh as far as what 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 exactly happened how did you uh get involved with the t v show though how did you go into t v from there um
1: something I'd, I'd wanted to play around with i i still would love to do tv and in fact i'm actually negotiating a deal right now for a television show but we'll get to that later but you know it's just something that was fun the opportunity came up you know me and this production company found these books called bone chillers which were a, a series of sort of fun scary books and we we sold it to abc and made this really fun show it was this, it was the show that the actress um uh, uh, Linda Cardellini. It was her first job, being in that show, and we just had a lot of fun. You know, it was, it was we got a chance to make a spooky high school movie. I mean, the TV show.
0: So that's really cool that the uh, the girl who would later on became Velma, and um, yeah, it was who would very,
1: be, very bizarre how that, <laughs> that all kind of worked out. Yeah,
0: so uh, that's really cool though. Uh, and then she later on, of course, went on Freaks and Geeks, and you know, which is another great, uh, TV show, you know,
1: so she's, yeah. I
0: guess she's, she's good at TV, you know? Yeah, she's uh, uh, now. <laughs> but, um, so I guess, um, you know, as, as far as, I mean, was that a good experience working, working for a television show that you liked, or?
1: I had a great time, yeah, I mean, uh, we, uh, we were pretty much left alone creatively, which was really, which makes it all the more fun, you know, I mean. And uh I got to work with a, a producer who's legendary in television named Fred Silverman. He was a lot of fun to work with and and it was just really neat. And the show turned out great, you know. Uh the a bunch of the episodes came out on video a number of years back, but they haven't come out on D V D yet and I'd love for them to because I'm really proud of the way that show turned out. I'd love for people to see it.
0: Definitely, and yeah, I saw that they were on VHS but unfortunately not on D V D yet, so
1: Yeah, unfortunately.
0: Um. I guess you really don't know too much about the, uh, you know, <laughs> why that might be, you know, pretty I much. Don't, you know, I don't know who
1: has the DVD rights to that or anything. I should look into it. It would be great. I'd love it.
0: Definitely. And so um, after, after you got Bone Chillers, uh, you ended up doing, um, well, you ended up writing Mouse Hunt, you know. And, yeah,
1: so Mouse Hunt sold, and that was great. That changed my life, you know.
0: That that changed your life. And that was the one that, you know, basically, because you, you said you made uh, uh you, you got yourself out of that kind of that slump, right? Like you had to write something original. and
1: Yeah, having been fired off of barbed wire was a miserable experience. And then writing Mouse Hunt pulled me out of that slump and changed my life. Yeah, How did you
0: come up with the idea for Mouse Hunt? Did it just kind of happen or?
1: Well, I'm a, I'm kind of an amateur cartoonist. I always have been. And sometimes when I'm just trying to think of ideas, I just doodle. And, um, I, I, and a lot of times I just skim through my old doodle books looking for ideas. And I had done a doodle of two guys on safari walking through the jungle with a, a pole slung over their shoulder carrying back a fresh kill. But instead of slung on the pole uh, there being a wildebeest or a, or a wild boar, There's just a little mouse tied to the pole, and I just labeled it Mouse Hunt. And uh, that's what gave me the idea to maybe do a movie about two, write a movie about two grown-ups who inherit a house that has a mouse in it that they try and get rid of, and the mouse is much smarter than they are, and uh, goes about making their lives a living hell. I wanted it to be like a live-action Tom and Jerry, you know?
0: Right. And that's and that's kind of that's how it came off. Um, so my my question is, you know, 'cause uh uh Gore directed the movie and everything, did you have much say as far as the production? Did he did did you talk with uh uh with the production team at all or kind of leave it alone and let them do their own thing? I left I left
1: them alone. I was just thrilled that it was getting made and getting made on such a large scale. I mean Gore loved the original script and he fought to keep it from being changed. I mean, he wanted it to be dark and he wanted it to be stylized and moody and quasi-period in in, in the way in the way it was set. He wanted it to sort of be classic that way. And uh, he's the one who did all the fought all the battles um, on behalf of the movie. But I was really pleased with the way that turned out, and he really did a great job. I thought
0: because it probably could have could have probably gone either way. It could have gone with. Gore's, you know, way that he had done it or he could have been like, oh, and then somebody else could have came in like a Michael Bay kind of person and kind of completely changed the movie around into...
1: Oh, it could have been 100% different. I mean, Gore was the perfect director for that movie. He really fought to keep it really stylized and really classy and he didn't want it to just be a brightly lit, you know, you know, uh, cookie-cutter kids movie that you know, just came and went. He really wanted to make something special and he did a great job.
0: Definitely. That's uh that's really cool. And you know, and it's great I guess to, to look back and say, you know, the director of Pirates of the Caribbean directed uh, you know, my little mouse mouse hunt movie.
1: Oh, it was awesome. It was great. Yeah.
0: So, um I guess uh after Mouse Hunt had got made you uh made something uh was it uh um hold on one second. Um you had actually gone off, and it was right before, uh, right before uh, Detroit Rock City, you made something about sex. Now, yeah,
1: my, my title for something about sex, the movie that I made is called Denial. When it sold to DVD, the DVD company changed the title to Something About Sex, which is a title I never liked. And, of course, the movie on cable is called Denial, and on DVD it's called Something About Sex. Which makes no sense at all, but whatever. It was, you know. It, it, basically, the thing is, is that while I was while I wrote Miles Sons and then then DreamWorks hired me to write Small Soldiers, which was another big kids movie, I always still continued to write and and direct um, independent movies, which I've never stopped doing. I always have wanted to do that. I wanted to have one foot in the studio world, and um, and you know, um, write studio movies and, and be involved in big studio hits. And then always write and direct independent movies that I'm real passionate about and uh, are a little more personal. And so denial was another one of was, of those. It was, a, it was a independent movie that I, I got an opportunity to make that was, you know, I tried to do something a little different,
0: try to spice it up a little bit, make something yeah. you know that you can that you can make right that you can yeah. you can get out there. Exactly. Um, but uh, you know how much of the, your heart and soul did you put into uh, denial?
1: Um, denial was just a really fun opportunity to do something that I thought would be kind of interesting to explore so you know every time I make a movie I try and put my heart and soul into it but denial was you know it was was a topic I was curious to explore it was about it dealt with monogamy and dealt with um, relationships and dealt with you know honesty and dishonesty and, and you know living in a state of denial when it comes to some of these issues and so that was really really fun
0: Oh, so that was pretty much that. The title was pretty much the theme. Exactly. Movie. So that's that's cool. Uh, so you know, most most of the time, a lot of people don't even know what their theme is you know, when they start exactly. writing the script. So. Um, yeah. So all right. So um, and what was it like? I mean, like, what was it like working with, like Jonathan, Jonathan Silverman and Christine Taylor and all of them? Like.
1: Awesome. I mean, I've been really lucky. I've, all the actors that I've worked with, for the most part, have been really fun, creative, and, you know, really nice folks.
0: Yeah, see, I kind of grew up, like, because every time I see Christine Taylor in a movie, I always think of her in Hey Dude. So, <laughs> like, I kind of grew up in that era. So, you know, those were the kind of, you know, because I grew up in, that kind of, you know, uh, young, kind of Nickelodeon kind of stuff. So it, right, it's right. great when I see to see some of those people ending up doing stuff like, you know, much bigger budgeted movies, you know, and, you know, it's just, it's weird to, like, look at them and go, man, I remember watching them when they were on this, or they did that, or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Do you ever feel like that? Like, oh, man, like, I you, you like somebody so much, and then you get a chance to actually work with them, and you're like, oh, man, this is insane.
1: Yeah, I have I have all the time. It's always great. I got a chance. Brad produced a movie early on when I was, before we even made The Dark Backward, he was a producer on a movie called Disturbed that starred Malcolm McDowell, and I got to be in that movie just in a small role, and I got to meet Malcolm and hang out with Malcolm, and actually got to know Malcolm a little bit, and he's always been one of my heroes, he's been in so many movies I've loved, and he was just a great guy, and really loved meeting him and working with him, and was really, really great.
0: Yeah, definitely, and uh, I'm sure you're, you, you, I'm sure you wanted to run out and get him to autograph your Clockwork Orange collectibles and <laughs> yeah, stuff like that, right?
1: I I wanted to, but I didn't.
0: Yeah, of course, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you want to keep it professional, didn't you? Exactly. <laughs> but um, so I guess uh, after denial, I mean, was was that a kind of a, I mean, I guess did you get left alone on that too, or was it kind of a hard project to get? you know finished it, it was you know
1: they're all movies are hard um i i really have been pretty lucky for the most part in that i i've had a lot of good creative freedom but nothing has ever compared freedom wise to like the dark Backward. i mean that really was the most freedom i've ever had creatively and i'm not saying anybody's ever forced me to do something i didn't want to do but you know just things change and and uh you know most movies there's you know people involved that it's just a different process but um denial i i i wouldn't say i was interfered with and and i i got to make the movie that i wanted to make but dark Backwood was a very rare exception i mean it, it really was a, a company that didn't care what we were making and so they just left us a hundred percent alone
0: definitely and and that and as far as uh, denial, I mean, was it was it just a was it a tough production at all? Like, you know, production. It was tough only
1: in that only in that one. You know, when you have a small amount of money to make a movie and you want it to look like a bigger movie, it's hard to uh, to cram a lot into a little. And you know, it's easy. Like for example, uh, a movie like Blair Witch Project was really made for its budget range. I mean, three people in the Woods alone for the camcorder you know it was a really smart, smart use of limited resources, you know um whereas denial so I was trying to make a movie that looked like a studio movie, even though I had an independent budget, so that always makes it hard, yep, and um all right, uh
0: well, the phone hasn't been ringing at all, that's kind of weird, so <laughs> that's all right. yes you know it's okay um uh, i'm you know i'm I'm okay with this this uh. It seems to be a good interview. Are you having fun?
1: I'm having a great time.
0: All right, awesome. So, all right. So I wanted to talk uh, next. Your next big uh, writing gig that you did for Hollywood, um, Small Soldiers. Yes. You know, um, a- as far as that, um, you know, most of it was what animation slash uh, live action, right?
1: It was a live action film, but they a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, special effects were done digitally. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so, now, I mean, uh, when you wrote that, you, you know, you pretty much, uh, co-wrote that with a lot of other, you know, actually, two of the guys you did, uh, was the parts of the Caribbean, so, yeah. um, uh, uh, did you guys get, you know, were you guys all kind of in a room together, or did you guys kind of, you know, um, you know, all do it your own version, and then kind of, you know... The way, the way
1: it usually works when, these uh, big studio movies are developed is um, lots of writers are brought on to rewrite what other writers have already done. You know, So the way Small Soldiers worked was there was an original script that had been developed for years and many, many writers had been involved in working on it. It was a completely different idea and it was just sort of about one toy soldier that comes to life and befriends a kid, right? So right. Steven Spielberg... Uh, threw those drafts away and after I wrote uh, mouse hunt for uh, them he hired me to reinvent small soldiers with a completely new idea which was to um, create a whole line of soldier toys and a whole line of monster toys and and their test toys for this toy company that puts munitions software into the into the toy design and as a result the toys wage a war on one another in the backyard of you know, a suburban house, right? right? So I wrote my drafts, and the movie got greenlit, which was very exciting, and they were going into pre-production. And then, you know, as is always the case with uh, big uh, movies being made uh, at big studios, a succession of other writers were brought in to rewrite me, and then other writers brought in to rewrite them. And so then, after all is said and done, what happens is all the different drafts, are sent to the Writers Guild for what's called arbitration. And then the Writers Guild decides who of all these writers had the most most contribution to the final product. And then they decide, through an arbitration process, who gets the final credit. So Small Soldiers is probably, of all the scripts I've written, the one that has had the most writers involved. I mean, there were many, many writers involved. But... At the end of the day, the first writer of the very first draft about the movie about the one tin soldier that comes to life, he got a credit because the writers guild always protects the first writer. So he definitely got a credit. Then I got a credit because I wrote basically the concept of the movie that you see. Of the, I created all the toys and all the you know characters of the toys and all the the storyline of the suburban house and the war between the toys coming, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, erupting and and all the characters, like the character that was played by Kirsten Dunst and, you know, Phil Hartman and all those characters. And then the, the last writers were the Elliot Rossio team, and they're the ones that were really kind of on the set polishing it up. And so th- that's those are the people that the writers have decided had contributed the most, and that's why we got the credit. Um, but there were a lot of other writers involved that did not get credit.
0: Wow. And I mean, I guess that's it sucks. And especially like I've heard stories where writers write something for a while, and then um, <laughs> somebody will come in and like rewrite them, and then they get the credit, and the other person doesn't get any credit and whatsoever. And they, are you know, like uh, Joss Whedon wrote Speed pretty much, and yeah. didn't get credit for it. Like all all the dialogue, you can tell is Joss Whedon's, you know, yeah. and he didn't get any credit whatsoever, and. They even had a poster made with his name on it, and then I guess when it all came down to it, Graham Yost won, you know. So yeah, that happens all
1: the time. I mean, that's just it's a it's a very imperfect process, the uh, the arbitration process, because it really is just the opinion of of the arbitrators who are reading the scripts. And by the way, if you're asked to read thirty, forty drafts of a script, it's really hard to sift through all that material in a timely fashion and really decide who really deserves the credit and and how do you make that a really, really fair process? It's very difficult. I don't envy the people who are on those boards who do that. And as a result, you know, sometimes guys like Jeff Whedon get screwed out of a credit that they deserve, you know what I mean?
0: Right, exactly. But, uh... but a lot of
1: times, you know, people, you know, they may be writing on a project for a long time, but the the contribution that they make to the final product might not be all that significant, you know what I mean? So. The amount of time someone spends on a project doesn't necessarily equate to the contribution you know
0: exactly, and I mean, I guess yeah, and uh you know you did a lot of work on it, so you deserve the credit what What if you had heard that uh your name was not not even going to be on there would you have would you have probably been upset and it happens
1: all the time? that's what happened to me on Planet of the Apes, you know, I mean, I didn't get a credit on the final Planet of the Apes movie, even though many of the elements that I introduced in my draft had remained throughout all the subsequent drafts and ultimately made it into the Tim Burton version. Um, And from my draft, the the project had changed hands many times. It went from my version to Oliver Stone's version to Christopher Columbus's version to James Cameron's version to ultimately Tim Burton's version. But there were still a lot of key elements in the final movie that are very uh, direct uh, uh, references to things that I created in my version, but I didn't get a credit. I mean, it would have been great to get a credit, but I didn't, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think your version probably would have been better, <laughs> you know. Than well,
1: I would have loved to have had that opportunity to see. It would have been great. You
0: know? Well, maybe Tim Burton will call you soon. And you <laughs> maybe. Right, right, maybe maybe they're going to do another sequel to Planet of the Apes and do it your way. You never know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. That's That That kind of sucks, but, you know, in, in the same sense, you really can't do anything about it. It's, it's it's the way it goes in Hollywood. That's
1: why you just can't waste any time being upset. I mean, the energy that, that I see other people spend being angry about things like that, to me, is a- a energy wasted. I'd rather put that energy into writing something new or trying to, you know, put it into just anything else that's productive, you know, because it just is what it is. I mean, there's nothing fair or logical or rational about pursuing a career in Hollywood. I mean, it's Hollywood. Everybody knows how crazy it is in Hollywood, whether you've been here or not. So to expect it to be fair or reasonable or logical or rational is absurd. You just have to know that there's no rules and everything's topsy and turvy and you just got to navigate. And by the way, and, and in many cases, you take advantage of how, you know, nonsensical the town is by creating your own situations that work for you. You know, in as many, opportun- in as many ways as it's unfair, there's equally as many ways that you can make, turn that unfairness into, you know, advantage for yourself. So you just have to be – you can't take your eye off the ball. And if, you're, if you really want to make movies, you have to always be focused on what do I have to do to make sure that I get to continue to get movies made. You know, don't waste time getting angry. Don't burn bridges getting upset. Just be
0: creative. Hmm. That's that's definitely cool, and it's um, a good way to look at it. Um, as as far as, uh, I guess, to go on from there, um, your, your next big project was Detroit Rock City. There you go. That was like, uh, that's one of your... I mean, you said that's the one you're most uh, remembered for pretty much right now.
1: Right? Uh, yeah, that's. I'd say that's definitely, of all the movies I've directed, that's the one that has the biggest cult following and uh, the one that everybody seems to have seen, you know.
0: And were you always like a Kiss fan?
1: I'm a, I'm a pop culture fan, and, uh, you know, and I'm a huge 70s fan. You know, I grew up in the 70s, and, and, yeah, I'm a KISS fan in that I'm a fan of of all the sort of iconic 70s iconography and music. And, you know, I, I enjoyed KISS at the time growing up. And so I loved the opportunity to, um, to get to make a movie set in that era, get to recreate that era, get to recreate, you know, KISS and the fervor that surrounded KISS. It, it was definitely something that I wanted to explore.
0: Now, were you one of the first people to uh, cast James DiBello, pretty much?
1: I I think uh, we, I gave him his first lead role, yeah.
0: Yeah, because, uh, you know, I think he was in a couple other things, but really, yeah, that was his first lead. And, I mean, I, I always, I, for some reason, I always forget that he's in that movie, not because it's him, but because he does such a great job, you know. and Oh, I he's was, great in it. As a, you know, he, yeah, he's fantastic as Trip. So he's like he. It almost seems like he's a completely different. He's not. He's not James DiBello, So I always kind of, you know, forget that he's that that that's who's playing him. But you know, he's he's such a great actor in there. Um, you know, and have you have you worked with him since or talked to him since? Oh yeah, I talked to
1: him all the time. Yeah, I talk to him all
0: the time. Yeah, I mean everybody have uh, I've. Like interviewed all of them who've actually met James and said, uh, I guess they all all call him Jimmy. Um, they all they all love him, so they know but uh, good things about the guy. They like will uh, ra- randomly run into him somewhere and you yeah, know yeah right yeah. So, um, but as far as getting the project off the ground though, like how were you approached? Like who who approached you to do the movie?
1: Well, it was a number of. uh coincidences really. Um, the movie was written during the time that I was making the chase by the assistant editor of the chase. Um, the assistant editor is a guy named Carl Dupree, and he had been an aspiring screenwriter at that time and was writing Detroit Rock City, and I always thought it was a good idea for a movie, and I read the script and I thought it was great, and I you know, he was just trying to get it off the ground. Cut to a number of years later, my girlfriend at the time, who was a producer uh was uh involved in a lot of projects and one of them that came across her desk was detroit rock city which at that time carl had attached gene simmons to and uh gene simmons i don't uh, because carl had gotten it to barry levine who was kiss's main photographer during their heyday and then he became a producer and so he got it to gene and then gene attached himself and then they partnered up with cat haas who's my ex-girlfriend and so anyway they all approached me to see if it was something that I would be interested in directing and I of course was familiar with the project from before and I reread it and I loved it and I said I'm in.
0: Wow, really cool. And then, um and then we flipped the package. And... Oh great. Okay, hold on, let me let me just put them on real quick. Sure. Uh hello, caller. You should be on.
2: Hi. Hi, how are you guys doing?
0: Hey, how are you doing?
2: Um, fantastic, just sitting here listening to you guys. Uh talk about some great movies. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, who is this? Uh, this is Jeremy. Jeremy from MySpace, actually.
0: Oh, hey, man, how are you?
2: I'm doing great, Adam, how are you? I'm doing great, you're you're in Chicago. Uh, well, I'm near Chicago, yeah, yeah. Uh, about yes, an Adam? hour out. Great. What was that? Looking... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry?
0: Okay, uh, uh I was just said what was that? Because I, I didn't hear Adam real
2: quick. <laughs> oh, so,
0: uh, Jeremy,
2: uh, do you have a question for Adam? Um, yeah, uh, actually, it's pertaining to the new movie, but I don't know if you guys want to talk about that later or now, but,
0: uh, I, I was ask. just... That, that'll be okay if you want to ask the question now.
2: All right, um, well, and per- pertaining to Homo Erectus, um, like, I, I was just wondering how that whole idea came about, um... Like, if you were contacted by somebody to write sort of a national Lampoon movie or, or if that was something that happened afterwards, or like um yeah I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you how it all went down
1: um, Brad Wyman, who I've talked about already, who produced a bunch of my movies, he and I were um trying to put a movie together. We had a big star attached, and uh, the quickest way to get a movie made is to have a big movie star attached because everybody wants to be into this movie stars so we had this movie star attached, and he was going to star in it, and I was going to direct it, and Brad was going to produce it. One thing led to another, and the movie fell through, right, because the star was, became unavailable. So uh, Brad said to me, very off the cuff and kind of half-joking, he said, you know, uh, you should just become a movie star, so that then we could just attach you to all our projects, and it would be a lot easier to get them made. And I said, don't tempt me, Brad, because I'll write a script for myself to star in, but if I take the time to do it, you have to try and find the money. Said, yeah, I'll I'll do it. I'll I'll get you the money. So I said, okay. So I went back and I decided to write myself a movie to star. And I'd always um, loved Woody Allen movies and Mel Brooks movies, and also you know big fan of Buster Keaton movies and Charlie Chaplin movies. And these filmmakers, these were writer-director actors. These are guys who wrote and directed and starred in their movies. And I always admired that style of filmmaking. And I'd always wanted to experiment with it. So I decided I was going to do my own version of uh, that kind of movie. Um, so I wrote, I thought of, I just thought it would be funny to do a caveman movie, because I hadn't seen one in a long time. And so I thought it would be fun to dress up in caveman clothes, and it would be kind of an inexpensive genre. I was a little bit wrong about that. But <laughs> I, was gonna, I thought it was going to be a less expensive genre than it turned out to be. And so I wrote myself a movie to star in called Homo erectus. And I gave it to Brad, and, he, and I said, okay, Brad, I kept my part of the bargain, now you find the money. And he just didn't even look at it. He just threw it in the trash. He said, who's going to finance a movie starring you? So I said, you better try and find some money for this movie, because I spent the time writing it. So anyway, he didn't pay much attention. And we were in pre-production on a different movie called Look, which was a very serious drama that came out last year. And Look is a movie that uh, we can talk about in a minute, but it was a movie shot all with surveillance cameras. So we were in pre-production on that, and he sent the script to one company, which was a company in Austin, Texas. And they were looking for movies to shoot in Texas. They would finance movies if filmmakers would come and shoot them, there. So, by some miracle, they read the script and loved it and wanted to make it and green lit it. And so I'm shooting Look, and we're on the set, and Brad comes up to me and he says, I got um, some funny news for you. And I said, What's that? He said, Well, I sent Homo erectus to this one company and they green lit it. I said, Get out of here. <laughs> he said, No, they did. They green lit it and, and, they, and they approved you as the star. I said, They green lit it and approved me as the star, and I haven't even met them. He said, yeah, go figure. I said, uh, well, what do you think? He said, I think we should go for it. I said, me too, let's go for it. I said, let's go for it after we're done shooting Look. We can maybe make it next year. He said, no, here's the, here's the uh, caveat. The company is affiliated with the University of Texas, and all the film students have to work on the movie as PAs and as interns for school credit. And so in order to get it lit, it has to be greenlit now. 'Cause it has to coincide with their semester schedule. And I said, You mean now now? He said, Yeah, like the day after we're done shooting this, you have to get on a plane and go to Texas and start prepping. So I said, Let's go for it. So literally the day after we finished shooting Look, I got on a plane, we went to Oh, and during Look I went there on weekends to do preliminary prep. So and then when I finished shooting we went to Texas and did active prep. And we shot the movie. It was a crazy, wild experience. And then I came back to LA, and we did post production on both movies simultaneously. And then when the movie was done, we we premiered it at the Slam Dance Film Festival. That's where National Lampoon saw it. They saw it in Slam Dance, and they bought it there.
0: Wow, that is awesome. That's the but, story. Yeah, How I mean, it? that was a weird. That's a weird story right there. <laughs> yeah crazy how what was that Jeremy
2: with all the, how the how was it working with all the college students did they seem to have their head in the game or were, were they pretty well prepared yeah no everybody did a great job I mean every movie every movie I've ever made
1: there's always a large contingent on the set who it's their first movie you know because when you're making independent films you need a lot of for lack of a better term, cheap labor. You know what I mean? So all your production assistants and your gophers and your interns are going to be people who have never worked on movies before because they're the cheapest people you can find. And if people want to get involved in movies and be a part of movie making, they're happy to be there and learn. I you know, I, I would have been, you know, So and, and lots of people that I know who are big filmmakers now, that's how they started. So, so it was no different than any other movie other than they weren't, Cheap, they were free because they were working for credit as opposed to you know fifty bucks a week.
0: Wow!
2: But they all did a great job. Yeah, it was cool.
0: Well, well, thank you so much, Jeremy, for calling in and asking the question. Oh, uh, no problem. Um,
2: I will hang up and listen to the rest of the show. Are yeah, all- uh, cool, are
0: you going to be at the screening? At the yeah,
2: I'll I'll, I'll be there in Chicago with uh, bells and whistles on, <laughs> letting everybody know. Cool, I look forward to meeting you face to face and thank you again so much for all your help in promoting that screening. I can't thank you enough. Oh, no problem. I I hope it, uh, gets out to a lot of people. So, all right. Well, you guys have a, have a great night. You too. Thanks man.
0: Bye. Thanks dude. Oh, that was really cool. That was great. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's great that you talked about that, but, uh, I guess, uh, we'll, we'll just get right back to Detroit rock city, but, uh, you know, that was, no that was cool that uh, we don't, I guess we don't have to ask that question. Uh, uh, cool. So, all right. So, I guess as far as Detroit Rock City, um, like, uh, are, are you really, you know, are you, uh, do, have you seen Detroit Rock City since? You know, you know occasionally, come out?
1: occasionally I'll catch a, a little bit of it here and there when it's on, you know, it's on cable constantly. Um, and I'll catch a little bit of it here and there. And I'm real proud of Detroit Rock City. I really have. A great time making it and I, I really I really do, I'm so grateful that it's become such a big cult hit, you know, and I would say, like I told you, more than any other movie I've ever made, I get more attention for that movie and people just dig it and they watch it over and over again and, and I'm just so thankful, you know, because I, when I think about when I was um, growing up, I mean, there were certain key movies that I would watch over and over and over again and they're really really influential to me and I've gotten a lot of feedback from a lot of fans who have said that Detroit Rock City is that movie for them. And it means a lot to me. Yeah,
0: it's one of those movies you can watch over and over and over again and not get tired of, you know. Thank you. It's so much fun. So thank you. Uh yeah, and, and you know, it definitely is and it's actually to me it's uh it's most remembered because it was the first movie we put into our D V D player when we got That's one a-
1: <laughs> That's
0: great. Right. Yeah, it was the first movie because I had just rented it uh, for the first time. You know, I rented. You know, I had to rent something, so I went over and I saw that, and I was like, Oh man, that looks like a lot of fun. So I rented it and I put it in my DVD player, and uh, so it's like the most. You know, that that right there is kind of its own little thing. So I thought I'd, I liked uh, about that. I am honored. Thank
2: yeah. you.
0: <laughs> Definitely. And so that was. I guess it came out right about the time that DVD. DVD players were getting popular. Like, the DVD had come out, like, this this past Laserdisc and into, you know, DVD. Yeah, the the timing was perfect, you know. Yeah, definitely. So I'm guessing that's another thing that you got a lot of people saying about, you know, that... Is it it like Mallrats as far as, you know, Mallrats was one of the most stolen uh, video cassettes of that time period, is would Detroit Rock City be like that? Did, did
1: anybody it, say Detroit Rock City? Is definitely one of the more uh, <laughs> stolen discs and and copied and and uh, downloaded and you know illegally shared uh, of uh, you know one of the more popular movies in that regard. But that's cool. I mean, I'm just glad people are seeing it. You know,
0: right? Exactly. And you you don't have anything to do with the business or whatever, so you really don't care as long as people see the movie and. Come uh, you know, come support you,
1: I guess. I'm real. There's a company there's a skateboard uh, and skateware company in San Diego that uh, stole the, the, the garage band in, in Detroit City called Mystery, you know, and they have their own mystery t shirt. The word mystery but the S is the the Kiss S, you know. Right. And uh, they this skateboard company took that logo from the movie because they love the movie so much and have made this huge line of skatewear and skateboard uh, paraphernalia and stuff based on that logo, and and me and the other one of the other producers, Tim Sullivan, we went to them and we said, look, we know you don't have the rights to use this logo, and we won't turn you into New Line Cinema as long as you continue to give us free shit, so we get <laughs> lots of free, free t-shirts and stuff from them, so it worked out great.
0: Oh, are you supposed to say that online, though? Because maybe, maybe... Oh, back that. Dad, I just
1: blew it. <laughs> no, it's all right. They're they're so well-established now, it's okay. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah, but, uh, no, I mean, that's great. And, uh, you know, speaking of Tim, though, I mean, Tim's Tim's a great uh friend to you. You know, like, he's uh, I'm sure he's helped you out a lot, you know, through stuff. Uh, really he's something you had on MySpace friend. and everything. So.
1: Oh, Tim's the best. Tim's a great producer, a great director, a great guy. We've worked together since Detroit Rock City, and we're actually in the process of putting together a, a very exciting project. Now that I can't tell you what it is, but I can tell you that when we make the announcement, it's going to be very exciting.
0: Well, I, I do know that you are, uh, I guess, attached. I don't know if uh, they've even gone into it for Beverly but I'm yeah. going to act
1: in it. Yeah, Tim is making that movie, and I'm going to act in that. That'll be fun.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you must have been a fan of 2001 Maniacs. Here, of
1: course,
0: wow. yeah, totally. And it's it's definitely one of those movies that when I saw, it like, oh my god, this is awesome, you know. So yeah, totally. I've been actually trying to get Tim on the show. It's just it's it's kind of hard with his schedule slash. I think his manager is kind of a, a tough guy to get, you know, to approve of right. shows and
1: yeah. Well, things. I'll definitely tell him that you know that this is a great show to do and that I have a great time. So
0: awesome, awesome. So um, maybe maybe you'll listen to it. Maybe you'll will uh, enjoy it. But um, all right. So um, you know, after Detroit Rock City, um, I mean, you must have been livid when you had done. I mean, not livid, but just like excited when you had done that because uh, you know it became a big hit and whatnot. And then was it a hit? Like right when it happened? Did it? No,
1: you know, it was not, it was not a hit theatrically at all. Um, it's funny. I I've said this before, but. The premiere was the best premiere I've ever been to in my life. I've been to a million premieres. It was by far the best premiere ever because the, the theater was packed, the buzz was intense, the movie played phenomenally. And then in the parking lot out behind the theater, we had this fantastic party where Kiss performed live for the party as well as Cheap Trick and Everclear. And it was just the most fun premiere. And, but what I said is next time I'd prefer to have a shitty premiere and a hit movie you know what I mean, than uh, then the reverse. But So the movie opened, uh, and it, it did not make waves at all. It, did not, it was not a hit theatrically at all. But the second it hit DVD, it became an instant hit. And uh, in a way, I'll tell you, because there are other movies that came out that same summer that were huge hits that summer that have gone on to be completely forgotten since. And I would much rather make a movie that doesn't make money, that, that isn't a big, doesn't make a big splash in its initial release, but goes on to withstand the test of time, you know? And when I think of other movies, like, like for example, I'm not comparing my movie in any way to this movie, but I'm just saying The Wizard of Oz was a total flop when it opened. You know what I mean? Right. But it, yeah, it's, an, it's one of the great enduring classics of all time, and it just proves that, you know, a theatrical, a theatrical release at best, in a best-case scenario, a movie plays a couple months. You know what I mean?
0: Right. But
1: a cult hit plays forever and always has new fans rediscovering it and rediscovering it and people talking about it and, and turning other people onto it. And I'd always rather have a cult hit. You know, hey, it'd be great to have both. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to have a big hit. to Actually, the thing goes on to become a cult hit. Uh, but for Detroit Rock City, I'm very happy with it having the cult following that it does.
0: Definitely. And, you know, so, uh, and then that's a great thing that it, it became a cult, you know, smash hit, you know, um, but, uh, right after that you had done, um, I guess a, uh, mockumentary, um, welcome to Hollywood, you know, yeah. right. Um, I, as, as far as doing that, which, um, you know, I, I saw that years ago, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I kind of rented it on video and having all those cameos in it and everything, and it being basically an actors you know, looking into the life of an actor, you know? Yeah. Uh, what, You know, was that a really fun, you know, kind of experiment? Oh, I had a
1: blast with that movie, absolutely. That was a great time. That was one of those movies that when we were making it, I really wasn't taking it seriously at all at the time we were making it. It was just sort of a goof. And we would shoot it a little bit here, a little bit there, it wasn't prepped or put together like a real movie. I mean, we literally would just prep a scene and go out and shoot some stuff, and we did it over a really long period of time, and and like I said, I really didn't take it very seriously at all, and then I actually co-directed that movie with another director named Tony Marks, and while I was shooting Detroit Rock City, he was editing that together, and by the time I came back to L.A., he had put together the cut, and I thought, hey, this turned out pretty funny. This is a movie I should probably take a little more seriously now, so we put a little more time into the editing, and we put a little more time into some reshooting, and that actually turned out to be a fun little cult movie, too.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you, do you right. get any, like, uh, emails about that or anything? Do people talk to you about that? A little
1: bit. Uh, a little bit. I, uh, I, I definitely, um, you know, have gotten comments saying that people like that movie, particularly uh, uh, struggling actors. You know, they, they relate to the experience. And I've gotten recognized a lot um, from that movie, too.
0: Yeah, I mean, so people see you and they're like, "Hey, you're from that movie, uh, Welcome to Hollywood." Or yeah, yeah. Um, is it like a uh, was it? Would you consider it a mockumentary? Yeah,
1: it's a mockumentary.
0: Yeah, so it wasn't. It was an actual documentary on the guy. Just uh, pretty much, it was about uh, a, an actor. You know, and a, a view into an actor's life uh, through yeah. you know, but through uh, the ups and downs of you yeah, know. Yeah, the
1: basic was is that i play myself and i'm just i want to make a documentary chronicling you know the the pursuit of fame so i want to pick somebody that i think is going to make it and and follow them from their first audition all the way through to success and stardom and 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 early on you, the audience can see that i picked the wrong guy i picked a guy who has no shot at success at all and that's really kind of where the, the joke is you know what i mean
0: yeah, and um actually I just watched uh on, on YouTube you've got um the Adam Rifkin show, I guess. And yeah. uh you kind and of just, kind of do the same thing with another actor when you do uh talk to Brian Singer. Um uh, I guess, right? Yeah, well
1: what happened was uh we were we that's from a pilot for the uh, for a television show, Welcome to Hollywood that we were doing for AMC. That's a scene from the pilot.
0: Oh, cool! I, I I didn't know that, but uh, I guess was it going to be like a uh, uh, TV show version of the movie of the mockumentary?
1: Yeah, it was going to be a TV show version of that of that movie.
0: Well, that's really great. Did um did Brian know at all that this was like it was this all like planned or was this kind of all? Oh yeah, he, he,
1: he was he was in on it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, because <laughs> because uh, he really did a good job. Like it all like oh, seemed so real that you guys were kind of. Oh, like, he did
1: Phenomenal
2: job, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I fun. guess there
0: would be no way they'd let you on the uh, set of X-Men and, uh, <laughs> X Men and or X Men or X Two or whatever it was, and let you guys do that. Just start videotaping, you know?
1: Exactly. Yeah, totally.
0: So it was, that's great though. And what what happened? Just it it just didn't work out. The uh, pilot.
1: Uh you know it's tough. You know, I mean, pilots. Uh, you, you know, a lot of a lot more pilots get shot than become TV shows. So. It, it really turned out well, too. It just, you know, was one of those things that just the timing was wrong, I guess.
0: Okay. Well, um, so after um, Welcome to Hollywood um, and the way that you guys did that, that, uh, you did a movie called Without Charlie. Um, yes, yeah, so Without really Charlie. Very-
1: yeah, that was an independent film that I, I directed that really hasn't It's one of those, it turned out great, but it's just one of those movies that fell between the cracks. The timing was really bad and you know, I really love that movie. I'd love for it to find an audience one day, but it's, it's really not available. It's not available to see anywhere, unfortunately, right now.
0: Um, but, uh, what was the thing? It just didn't work out the way that... Uh, well, the movie turned great.
1: The movie turned out great, and then it just kind of, you know, distribution is a, tough, is a tough nut to crack sometimes, and, you know, it just kind of fell between the cracks, and, and it kind of got lost in the shuffle of a lot of other movies that the company was making at the time, and and, uh, and as a result, you know, regimes change, and, and uh, it's one of these days it'll, it'll find its way, but it's, it's, it's kind of like the, the movie I never made. I made it, it turned out great, and nobody's really ever seen it. And I hope someday it'll find its audience, because it, it really did turn out well. It's about a, a woman dealing with her first serious heartbreak and how she sort of puts the pieces back together of her life. And it stars Judy Greer, who's a great actress, and it really turned out really well.
0: Um, so, uh, you know, was that kind of an upsetting thing for you? Like just to realize that it, you know, just didn't work out. Well, you know,
1: like I was saying before, I mean, Hollywood is just replete with tons and tons of rejections and disappointments, and you just can't let it bum you out. I mean, otherwise you just want to split your throat every day. I mean, it's just, you know, Hollywood is, is a, is a tough business to navigate through. So, you know, whatever bad happens, you just have to not let it affect you. You just, it, it, here's, here's, Here's another um, metaphor. Um, it's kind of like being a boxer, pursuing a career in Hollywood, right? Right. Um, if, if a boxer took it personally every time he got punched in the face, he'd be a really shitty boxer. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> um
1: So you just have to think of it as you're the boxer, and everybody's job is to punch you in the face, You know, every single place you turn is another rejection and another disappointment, and you can't take any of them personally. You can't take any of them seriously. You can't let any of them um, crimp your style. You know what I mean? You just have to hope that, you, you know, that you can get a few good jabs in before the end of the round. You know what I mean? So every disappointment that comes my way, I just try and, you know, I just try and deflect it and not let it affect me, and, just keep moving forward on other fronts, and that's what people have to do. You know, I, I just see people out here, and it's hard to do. You know, it's hard to not take things personally, but there's nothing that will slow you down more than taking rejection personally because the, the rejection ain't going to stop coming. You just got to figure out how to best deal with it, you know, so it doesn't it doesn't uh, mess you up. Wow.
0: And so I guess I kind of helps you with uh, the next project, which – I guess it has gotten a theatrical release or a, or a, a DVD release, um, Night of the Golden Eagle. Um, yeah, I, Night of the Golden Eagle, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that, that was, uh you know, that's that's uh, gone on to actually get a pretty good release, right?
1: Oh, it got a great release, it played art houses for like five months, it traveled around New York, LA, all the different, like Chicago, all the different art house circuits, you know, and. It got great reviews, and it won a bunch of awards at film festivals, and it, it's a movie that, uh, um, it's a very intense drama. It's a very, it's a dark drama about uh, a few different stories that are interwoven over the course of a, a very hot night in a downtown L.A. crack hotel, and uh, yeah, it turned out it turned out cool, and, and um, I'm real proud of it.
0: Yeah, it's definitely, like, it's even on, like, the Netflix instant viewing, so...
1: Yeah, which is great.
0: You know, check that out right now if they wanted to, you know?
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And so, um, and and that, I guess that also, like, you know, when one, one, one you know, uh, when one bad thing happens, you know, when one door shuts, another one opens, so you got a chance. You know, you, you didn't get the, the one movie uh, without Charlie, didn't get the big distribution, but then all of a sudden the next movie you did, and, uh, exactly. you know.
1: Upgrade,
0: yeah. It turned out great. So um, maybe without Charlie we'll end up getting, you know, getting something soon, right?
1: Hope so. One day it would be great. Mm-hmm.
0: So people can check it out and, yeah, so the Adam Rifkin completists out there can, you know, get all the DVDs. Oh, yeah, so.
1: Right? Oh, I'd love that.
0: <laughs> Have a whole uh, Adam Rifkin box set one day, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that'd be awesome.
0: Um, but anyway, so uh I guess um next after that, because 'cause we're almost out of time, that's crazy. I and mean, wow, we haven't well even finished your uh career
1: yet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna um I will have to probably skip Zoom though. Um I guess that's a pretty cool thing that you get to write another superhero movie for uh you know, uh like a, a small I guess a small superhero movie for Hollywood.
1: Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, it was like a movie about superhero school for kids, and it was a lot of fun, and Tim Allen starred in it, and it, uh, you know, it was just another one of those opportunities where I got to write this big studio kids movie, and it kind of, you know, it was made for a ton of money, and, um, you know, I I love those opportunities. You know, it keeps, like I said, I like to keep one foot in the big studio world, and one foot in the independent world, and that's just sort of that, that, Underdog, Mouse on Small Soldiers, and there's a bunch of other ones that haven't been made, or haven't been made yet, like I... I wrote a movie of Where's Waldo. I wrote a movie of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. I mean, there's all kinds of ones that still haven't even seen in the light of day yet that that I hope to come to the screen someday. And it's just really fun to to still get to stay involved in in big movies like that, you know.
0: Were you originally like, because if I remember correctly, weren't you originally one of the uh, I guess uh, writers for He-Man? Because I think at one time it was on IMDb. Yeah,
1: I wrote the original few drafts of uh, He Man, and uh-huh. um, and so we'll see when the final movie gets made <laughs> what the Writers Guild Arbitration Board has to say about what my credit will be, if any. But uh, yeah, I wrote; uh, I was the first writer on.
0: Oh, so wait, you you did say though that the first writer usually gets protected, right?
1: Usually, but unlike Small Soldiers, which was an original idea. Oftentimes, if the material is – if the project is based on underlying material, like He-Man, yeah. there is a chance that because it already existed before, that I'm not as protected. But let's hope, fingers crossed, I'd love for my name to be on a He-Man movie. It'd be really cool. And, and the drafts I wrote kicked ass. and I mean, it was really fun to do. So I hope that they uh, use a lot of my stuff and I get to keep my credit. Wow,
0: that's really cool, though. Um, so um, after, uh, after that um – after Night the Golden Eagle. Um, I guess we'll we'll go into look in uh, Homo erectus uh, a little bit more, even though we did touch on them so a good amount, so I guess uh that was good. <laughs> we yeah, to talk about that too beforehand. But um totally. look, you know, uh I know you've talked about look a lot on like I, I see on uh YouTube you've got lots and lots of interviews of you doing for look. And yeah. um I guess how kind of kind of neat the whole process of it it was, you know, it being about surveillance cameras and every you don't know who's watching you, at, you know, all the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea for that movie basically came to me, and this is a story I've told before, but it came to me when I got a, a, a red light ticket, you know, uh, um, from a camera, a red light camera. And they sent me the ticket in the mail along with the photograph they took of me running the light. And I was so unnerved by the fact that somebody had taken my photograph without my knowledge and sent it to my home address, I started to think, holy crap, how many other times am I photographed without my knowledge out there in the world? You know? And so I just started paying attention, and I realized there are cameras literally everywhere. I mean, I did not realize how many there were. And I did a little research, and I found out that there are, you know, that the average person is captured, you know, over 200 times a day on surveillance camera. And I just thought, this could be a really interesting way to tell a story, you know, to shoot a movie entirely with surveillance cameras as though a filmmaker had collected all this surveillance camera footage and then just cut together the best parts into a story of every time you pass in front of a camera, like tracking you everywhere you go. Um, And I also thought that it was a topical uh, issue because, you know, we live in, you know, in this sort of post nine 11 world where um, security and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, public security is, is such, such a, you know, such an obsession, and so people want, you know, to be guaranteed their safety, and, and the, sort of, uh, um, the sort of idea is is that the more cameras there are, up, the safer of the society we live in, and then the opposite of that coin is, well, this is George Orwell's nightmare come true, this is an invasion of our privacy, cameras in dressing rooms, cameras in bathrooms, cameras everywhere we go, you know, our civil liberties are going out the window, uh, and so I just thought that was an interesting debate to explore, through a narrative drama. I didn't want it to be a political movie. I didn't want it to be a documentary. I just wanted to tell a character story about average people and how they're captured every day and the things they do when they don't think they're being watched. And that's really what it's about. It's a movie about the things that people do when they don't think they're being watched.
0: Well, uh, I liked it because... Well, I I saw some of the the clips from uh, the movie. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to see it yet. But um, the clips I saw, uh, you talked about a... um, you know, there there's the um, child abduction scene, and it seemed like the the guy who was abducting the child knew exactly where the surveillance camera was, so that they could hide from the their surveillance camera. If I was correct, they kind of hid their body, you know. Sure, sure. And I thought that was you know that was unique in the process of knowing like the delving into the mind of a child abductor. Was that kind of like a, a weird experience for you? Shooting all the
1: stuff with the child abduction creeped everybody out. I mean, when we were shooting the the guy stalking the little kid in the mall, I mean, you know, they're actors, and we're shooting a movie, and everybody knew it was fake. But as soon as he would start following that little kid around, man, we just all got so creeped out every take. There's just something about it that just, just unnerved everybody. It just tapped into something, you know.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I'll definitely have to check it out. I mean, it's definitely on the top of my uh, queue list on Netflix
1: now. Yeah, please check it out. We're actually just, you know, it played theatrically for a really long time. We opened it in late '07, uh, and it it got great reviews. We won a bunch of film festivals, and and uh, and it, it really, you know, it tra- we had a bunch of prints travel around all the different art houses all around the country, and and now we're just now finalizing a really kick-ass uh, DVD deal. So once it's um, once we close that deal we're going to have a a really killer d v d with all kinds of extras it's going to be great uh, I, I
0: thought it was already on um, you already can order was...
1: the you can order the academy screener what we do you know every time you make a movie that's academy award eligible um right. you you print up what's called academy screeners, which is copies of the movie for every academy member but we had a whole bunch of extras so if you go on my myspace page, which is um myspace.com slash Adam Rifkin there's a link to it or you can go directly to look-themovie.com which is the look website you can you can buy one of the limited edition academy screeners it's not the official DVD it's just extras that we have that you know I signed them all and and anybody who wants one could buy it and it's really cool kind of little collector's item yeah definitely wow so it's
0: it's definitely something to uh, check out um, yeah. But, yeah, you're, um, uh, I, I, for some reason, I thought I was already on DVD. I was, I was mistaken.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's all right. It, it's probably, you were confused probably because of the uh, Academy screen. Yeah, because I saw
0: that. I guess I saw that on your website. So. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: But, uh, yeah, I thought I'd, add, for some reason, I thought I'd added it, but I guess not. Anyway, but, uh, yeah, definitely, um, it, it, it seems like one of those movies that will uh, definitely get to some people and, kind of make, make them think about, you know, about that certain uh, certain topic. I hope so.
1: so. I, that's what I really wanted people to do is I wanted people to see the movie and just be aware that everything they do, everywhere they go, they're being watched. And, you know, what kind of things have we all done in front of cameras that we are unaware of, you know. And, and I just wanted to get people talking about that stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely well, I'm sure even like that just like uh, topic conversation, you know, uh right there just, just yeah, if you brought that up, they will be like, "Oh, wow." Uh you know, they'll they'll start thinking about um, you know, different things. "Oh man, I I shouldn't have done that." You yeah, know? well, every
1: time we've done Q&As after screenings of that movie, it you know, the audience gets really intense about like some people are really into, you know, cameras everywhere and they'll give up any civil liberties cuz it makes it a safer world. And, why should I care if there are cameras everywhere as long as I'm not doing anything illegal? And then the other side of the coin, people are screaming like, no, but you don't understand. It's not illegal to go to AA, but who wants to be photographed going into AA? And it's not illegal to go into Planned Parenthood, but if there's a camera in the lobby of Planned Parenthood and somebody gets a copy of that footage and it, you know, it affects my future or whatever, you know what I mean? So that's where it's an interesting debate.
0: Exactly. So, um, that that's really cool that you uh, thought of that and you know you're the first one to actually really do it so.
1: It was fun. Thanks.
0: Definitely. Um. So that brings me also. I guess we we talked about how you went from look uh, from the set of look to uh, Homo erectus. But uh, how long did it take to uh, to do pre-production for that movie?
1: Pre-production on Homo erectus was fast because we had to work fast. So we were literally. From the time I, I uh, landed in Texas to the time we started shooting, it was probably about a month uh, to get everything up and running. And, uh, and then we shot for, it was, again, it was a quick shoot. We shot for about a month. So I was in Texas for about two, two and a half months. And then, I mean, we literally, I went from shooting look directly to shooting Homo erectus. So within about four months' time, I got both movies shot. But then it took over a year to do post-production on both of them, just because we were doing both at the same time.
0: Wow, so yeah. uh, that that's really cool, though. That I mean, I guess it's it's now coming out on DVD. Um, it, it's July. Um, well, Homo Erectus
1: comes out theatrically July 11th. Oh,
0: theatrically July 11th. Yeah, it comes out. It comes out
1: in selected cities July 11th. It's starting. It's starting in LA and Chicago, and then it's going to go to Seattle and 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 Cincinnati and. In New York and it's going to travel around it's going to get even though it's not an art film it's a national lampoon you know silly comedy it's being released in an art uh house style, so it's going to art houses uh around major cities and uh and then the d v d will be in november
0: november so yeah. um and you've got all these like uh, uh selective screens you got one in Chicago soon that's Jeremy has said. <laughs> Jeremy's
1: been awesome in in terms of spreading the word. We're doing a screening this Friday night in Chicago at a theater called the Hollywood Boulevard Theater, and um, and it's in Woodridge, Illinois, which is outside of Chicago. And David Carradine's going to be there live. I'm going to be there live. Ron Jeremy's going to be there live. It's going to be a hoot. It's this Friday night, uh, so uh, uh, please check that out if you're in the Chicago area. Uh, and then also, to, then i got to fly back to L.A., because Saturday night, this Saturday night, at the um, Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills on Wilshire, uh, we're going to do a, another special screening Q&A, and uh, David Carradine's going to be there, too, and I'm going to be there, too, and it's going to be a blast.
0: You guys are going to be so tired. It's going to be great. Oh, my job. God.
1: And tomorrow night, we're doing the Ain't It Cool News screening of Homo Erectus at the American Cinematheque Theater in, in Hollywood. Anna Cool News is doing an Anna Cool News Presents screening of the movie. Moriarty, off the Anna Cool News set, is going to moderate the Q&A. That should be a hoot, too.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, we're almost out of time, so uh, it's going to go off live anyway. So I just want to say thank you so much, Adam, for coming on. And, um, uh, you know, I know you've got a lot of projects in the works, and I really can't wait to see basically what else happens, you know, next
1: definitely man thank you so much I really appreciate you having me on and anytime you know you need you, know, you need anything let me know and I'd love to tell you about my new project when I'm allowed to talk about it so I'd love to announce it you know
0: definitely uh, we'll definitely have you come back on here and talk about that stuff and you know and talk about the stuff you couldn't talk about because we only had two hours
1: so. no problem no problem well listen man thanks again and anybody who has any questions tell them to contact me on uh, myspace.com slash Adam Rifkin
0: all right. Thank you so much, Adam.
1: You bet. Thank you, man. Take care. All
0: right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, everybody. That was Adam Rifkin. And uh, thank you so much uh, for listening. I know you can't hear me now, but you will hear me when the uh, show uh, is done. And um, thank you so much, and I hope that you guys all had a great time uh, listening. I had a great time having Adam as a guest. And um uh, sorry we had to end up abruptly, but we we ran out uh ran out of time. So thank you so much and have a good one.